Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. My name is Jan Fran and today is... What the hell is today? It's Wednesday, (laughs) the 2nd of June. (laughs) Slipped my mind for a moment. Well, that person that you can hear laughing there is (laughs) Katrina Flowers. Hey, how are you? So good to be back with you. Yeah, you um you had an adventure on on the weekend. You took the cat to the vet. I like you am a crazy cat lady, and my cat is deaf. (laughs) (laughs) No no judgment. My cat's deaf, so he's not allowed out of the house, but he's desperate to get out, and he got out on the weekend. And he returned home on Sunday, and he's pure white, and he'd been spray-painted hot pink. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Which is funny now that I know that he's okay, but I had to take him to the vet to get a once-over because I was like, if they've spray-painted you pink, what else have they done to you, poor little man? Oh, my goodness, the things that vets put up with. Well, vets are what we're going to be talking about on today's show and, you know, sometimes they have to wash paint off cats, I guess, but other times their work is really demanding. So we're going to look at why this particular medical profession, why the workers feel overworked and overwhelmed. It could be three o'clock in the morning and you might get a phone call and it might be a very immediate emergency, such as the dog hit by car, or you could just be having dinner with your family and getting multiple phone calls. Yeah, that's what we're going to take a look at on the show today. What is going on inside the veterinary industry and why vets are walking away from the profession and also why in many cases the job is costing them their life. That is today on The Briefing. Before that, let's hit the headlines. Well, Victoria's lockdown could be extended beyond Thursday as health authorities sound the alarm over just how quickly that virus is spreading in the state. This is stranger-to-stranger transmission. They don't know each other's names, uh, and that's very different from where we've been before. Stranger-to-stranger transmission. That's not a sentence that I want to hear. No, that was the State Health Department, uh, Victoria State Health Department Deputy Secretary Jerome Weimar speaking there. Now, authorities basically are saying that the virus is being transmitted through these increasingly fleeting encounters with people, right? So one in 10 positive cases in Victoria actually caught the virus from a person that they didn't know. They're brushing past each other in a small shop. You know, they're going around a display home. They're looking at phones in a a Telstra shop. This is very, relatively speaking, relatively fleeting contact. They don't know each other's names. Uh, and that's very different from where we've been before. Yeah, so senior state government ministers met up overnight to discuss that lockdown extension. Many papers, including News Limited papers, are reporting that the Victorian government will announce that extension to the lockdown this morning. Nine newspapers also saying an extension to that lockdown is looking really likely. Yeah, and depends on what time you're listening to this podcast. I mean, you might have already got the news that the lockdown is either extended or not. There are now 54 cases in the Victorian outbreak. Three were announced yesterday. Two of them were linked to the existing cluster, um, but the origin of the third one is still under investigation. The other thing is that there's now 320 exposure sites Mm. in Victoria, 
And there's more than 5,000 uh, primary close contacts that have been required to isolate. So it's been a mammoth task. Yeah. And, and now um, also on the New South Wales South Coast and yeah. uh, near Goulburn with a Victorian visitor to the region who's now tested positive to COVID. And it's thought that that person was visiting places like Jervis Bay, even the Big Merino, great tourism icon, the Big Merino. But unfortunately, this Victorian visitor was in those spots in uh, around May 24, 25, while they are thought to have been positive with the virus. Yeah, so anyone in those New South Wales areas, stay vigilant and just keep on top of the information that New South Wales Health is releasing via website and their Twitter feeds if you happen to be one of the minority people on Twitter. Um, there's also some questions being raised in Perth over hotel quarantine. This is so interesting. So it's two people who were side by side in rooms. They were at the end of a corridor and it's now thought that people who are in rooms side by side at the end of corridors have a stronger chance of transmitting the virus to each other. Mm. So they're not going to put people in those rooms anymore. Other than that, they actually have no clue how the virus has spread between these two men. Yeah, no doubt this is just going to add to the growing calls of people, not just people, but authorities, epidemiologists, really pushing to rethink our hotel quarantine system. Well, the Federal Aged Care Minister says he's comfortable with the pace of vaccinations in aged care, despite admitting to not knowing exactly how many staff in the sector have been vaccinated. You don't know. Well, we don't have that data. Yes, well... You would expect that the Federal Aged Care Minister would have data about federal aged care issues, mm. but alas, uh, Minister Richard Colbeck there was being grilled by Labor's Katie Gallagher in a Senate estimates hearing. The minister had earlier said that he was comfortable with the pace of the rollout in aged care. Of course, that pace has been criticised, particularly after this latest Melbourne outbreak, because there have been several homes that have been caught up in it. Yeah, that's right. And I, they've asked for those figures and they're hoping to have them by Friday, along with the number of uh, aged care workers who've been vaccinated for the flu. So hopefully we'll get a clearer picture of that, along with that so-called vaccine blitz that's being rolled out in mm. Victoria at the moment, which it is worth noting, the onus is on the aged care workers themselves to front up and then they'll be pushed to the front of the queue. When you hear about a blitz, you think about people swooping into facilities and, and vaccinating That's everyone. That's the imagery, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, Minister Kobach did say that there was over 31,000 workers in the sector that had been fully vaccinated, right, so that have had both shots. Mm. But there's more than 350,000 workers who work in aged care across Australia. So that's actually less than 10% of aged care workers around the country that have been fully vaccinated. And given that they were considered a priority for vaccination when the program was rolled out in February, it's now June. Yeah. You know, a lot of questions. China has told Australia and New Zealand to butt out and stop interfering in its affairs after both nations came together to condemn the country. We are opposed to the allegations in the joint statement. That was China's Deputy Head of Mission to Australia, Wang Xinin, speaking to the ABC there. This comes after our PM, Scott Morrison, joined New Zealand's leader Jacinda Ardern in Queenstown. That was earlier this week 
to condemn China's approach to human rights in Hong Kong and also to um, other parts of the country. So this joint statement from those two leaders uh, also raised serious concerns, primarily over developments in the South China Sea, where China has been accused of building up its military bases and China has hit back, saying those accusations are groundless and uh, our PM and Jacinda Ardern have been irresponsible in their remarks. It's worth noting, Jan, we've already been wrapped over the knuckles in a pretty severe way with a raft of Aussie exports being blocked by China, mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. barley and beef and lobsters. Remember how you could buy lobsters super cheap over Easter? Mm-hmm. Um, not great for producers of, of lobsters though, and also coal. Yeah. Well, look, we've had an um, escalating tensions with China and we've reported about them on this show uh, minimum for the last year. I suppose that if we are going to enter a beef with China, no pun intended, it's probably good to have New Zealand on our side. So we have some new figures out showing national house prices have jumped again last month. As the Reserve Bank says, it's unlikely to raise interest rates for another three years. Great news, I guess, for people who have mortgages. Not so great if you are looking for a house right now. Yeah, so property prices grew by 2.2% in May alone, with the cheap costs of borrowing one of the key factors that are driving this boom because interest rates remain at record lows. Man, I know a few people who are looking to buy a property and they're not having a good time. No, no. a bad time. Absolutely. And following this meeting yesterday, the Reserve Bank says it's committed to keeping things very low and they are going to hold the official cash rate at 0.1%. They won't raise rates until inflation picks up and they don't expect that to happen until 2024. Yeah, so if you're planning on buying a house this year, I don't know, can can you wait three years? Oh, oh it doesn't sound like very a good dispiriting. Idea. Yeah. And Australia's former finance minister Matthias Cormann has used his first speech as head of the OECD to call on the world's richest countries to adopt net zero emissions targets. Yeah, so he gave his inaugural address as Secretary General. Um, of the OECD, which is the leading global economic body. Matthias Cormann said that COVID recovery had basically given countries a chance to reset economic growth on a more sustainable path. Yeah, his former boss, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, is of course facing growing diplomatic pressure to adopt a net zero by 2050 target for Australia, something the PM just will not be drawn upon. He says we can do better than that, but he actually won't say how yeah. or when or <laughs> Well, he keeps saying <laughs> we're going to hit a net zero emissions target by the second half of the century, which, I mean, it could be 2050, it could be 2099. I, I don't know. But it's interesting that a former Liberal Party minister is now in this position, speaking to the entire world about zero net emissions and his party back home is one of the outliers. I mean, Australia is one of the sort of few developed countries that have still not firmly committed to that 2050 net zero emissions goal. A very curious situation indeed. All right, Kat, we're going to let you go. Annika's going to jump in. We're going to talk vets. Most vets will tell you that at some point it's taken a a negative toll on their mental health. I personally don't know a single vet that it hasn't taken its toll on. We have to be very careful how we deal with it. Um, there's, There's a lot of vets that 
have buckled under the pressure and that unfortunately is either leaving the profession or ultimately sometimes suicide. It happens regularly. The suicide toll in our profession is horrendous, unfortunately. Often when we talk about suicide and vets, we're usually talking about military veterans, so the men and women who go off to war and spend years in these extremely difficult circumstances. But on today's briefing, we're going to look at mental health and suicide among a different type of vet, veterinarians. According to one Australian study, they are four times more likely to take their own life than the general population. Yeah, this is double the suicide rates of doctors, pharmacists, dentists and nurses. And experts say that vets are leaving the industry in droves and that this is creating a vet shortage in Australia. Another survey found 37% of vets are considering leaving the industry within a year and 40% said they were contemplating leaving the current job. Yeah, Jess Bat runs her own vet clinic in Queensland Jess, when we chatted earlier, you said that you loved your job, but that it came with some pretty serious pressures. So can you talk us through some of those? Pressures like after hours, um, that's probably, for me, it's probably one of the main things. Um, Having a a young family or just trying to have a lifestyle, um, trying to do hobbies, (laughs) you are stuck by the phone. Um, It could be three o'clock in the morning and you might get a phone call and it might be a very immediate emergency such as the dog hit by car or you could just be having dinner with your family and getting multiple phone calls as I've started having children um, getting someone to cover me while I you know was going on maternity leave initially with my first baby I only had seven weeks at home um, completely which Mm. was very hard. Is it a lonely profession? Do you find it lonely? I personally don't because you're working with so many people, nurses, um, in some cases receptionists, um, and you have a lot to do with clients. So you work very closely with the owners of the animals. If you were somebody that was the sole vet in a very rural town, yes, it would be very hard. And how about the emotional toll? I just know when my Dalmatian's sick, (laughs) you know, much I worry and you've got people coming through your front door. Yeah. You know, the the animals they love most in the world are unwell. Uh, How do you sort of deal with that? When an animal's sick, you have to understand that that is that person's family um, in most cases. It's something that you take seriously, that you take on board and that you really have to you have to be mindful of and you always do your best to either treat them or to make the the process such as whether it is palliative care or in the end euthanasia, you make that process as easy as possible and you do have to take on some of the emotional burden. Um, I do anyway and I find that it helps the clients, um, the owner of the animal, it helps them a lot. Obviously during COVID we've seen the number of people buying pets actually skyrocket people wanting a bit of a companion during lockdown has that added to the stresses and I guess what can we do to sort of make sure that people are responsible pet owners (laughs) wow do you have another two hours (laughs) um we're seeing just massive increases of new puppies new kittens um just new animals in general uh we've seen a lot of people able to spend their money more on their animals as well they're not traveling you know they're not spending their money on those things that they were spending it on in general and now that money is being put into their pets which is wonderful it is really nice we've seen people coming in and getting those operations and stuff that they have been not able to pay for previously 
or didn't budget for. So that's been really nice, but it has increased the workload a lot. So what do you think can be done to change it? I think a lot of it is workplace culture, being a bit flexible with employees, making sure that they do get the breaks and the life balance that they want. You can pay people more and that that goes only so far, but it's whether or not the clinic can pay them more as well because, yeah, it's often very hard. I think workplace culture and having that work-life balance is so important to most people. It's probably the primary thing, I think, to most vets. Instead of working, you know, 40, 50-hour weeks, having a day off a week or being able to go away for the weekend, not, not be on call, that's really important to them. That was Jess Batt talking to us about her experience of being a vet in Queensland. Let's get a slightly broader picture of the industry now with Dr Warwick Vale. He is the National President of the Australian Veterinary Association and he says that suicide is common. Many of us know colleagues or directly that have committed suicide uh, as veterinarians. It's a very common experience. If you've been in the profession long enough, you will know uh, quite a few that have committed suicide. Dr Vale says there are a number of factors contributing to the poor mental health of vets. Well, the, the causes are multifactorial. Some of it relates to the long working hours. Um, I mean, 60 to 80 hours a week is not unheard of. And the other big factor is the financial stress. Um, when you're graduating from university with a debt, if you're, uh, if you're lucky, somewhere about $100,000. And if you're paying full fee paying, so you're less lucky, um, you've had to pay your full way through rather than getting some government support, you might have a debt of up to two hundred and fifty dollars to $300,000. And then you come into a marketplace that requires you to work in very long hours and often after hours, often uh, unsupported in difficult situations with stressful cases, um, and you're earning somewhere between fifty dollars and $60,000 a year um, as a young veterinarian, it becomes um, unsustainable. I mean, the, the, you tried living off that sort of um, wage and, and just having that debt. That's not mortgage debt. That's just to have your education and your degree. So financial stress is a big part of it, but also conflict that we have. So the conflict with having to look after patients um, where we know that we, we could get better options diagnostically and treatment wise and yet there are financial constraints put on us and you know we end up having to euthanise animals that we could otherwise save uh, or diagnose or treat. Dr Vale says all of these factors are also adding to a shortage of vets. Conservatively at the moment we believe there's between 800 and 1,200 full-time jobs going in Australia at the moment and that's after the graduating year of 2020 so they seem to all have got uh, field jobs and there was quite a few students that graduated from across the many universities and veterinary schools that we have. Our problem is acute at the moment with uh, workforce shortage, there's no doubt about that. Many veterinarians have given up advertising because they just weren't getting any response after and, uh, uh, you know, advertising a, not, a good job with good Good conditions, but just no no applicants over a six to nine month period. That was Dr. Warwick Vale from the Australian Veterinary Association. Yeah, and doing some reading for this story, I came across a bit in an article that was just a quote from a vet, and she just said, "Be kind." She just said, "If you're going in and you're taking your pets in, just be kind to the vet that's going to be looking after them." And I know sometimes that can sound a bit woo-woo, like kindness doesn't solve all <laughs> of the world's problems, you know. But I thought. Yeah, that's a that's it probably hurt. it can't hurt and it's probably a good thing 
to keep in mind just knowing all this stuff and some of the pressures that they're under. And it can be a really stressful situation. I know how I feel when my pet gets unwell and, you know, you're in the vet and you don't know what's happening. So be kind, I think, is a good start, but hopefully we can see them paid more and have some industry support too. Now, if you're listening today and you need to contact Lifeline, the number is 13 11 14. All right, that's it for our show. Uh, Tomorrow we're going to look at Australia's deportation laws and why they disproportionately affect New Zealanders. Listener.